My guest this episode are two guys who blur the lines between hip-hop, electronica and fashion to an unbelievable extent. One is a Dublin-born, London-based DJ, the other one of the most stylish, unique American cats you will ever meet. In their daily lives, they're Arvine and Shimon Cassette, but at the festival, club, gig, wherever you may find them, or even in your ears, you'll know them as Bon Voyage NYC. So Brooklyn met Dublin. How did this happen? It's a very difficult question to answer, but we're going to try. Okay, because I've heard various kind of like mystical takes on this story that, you know, it was a beautiful thing that happened in New York at a warehouse party. and Oh, the mattress, the secret mattress. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's it's, it's quite a few combinations of stories that align this whole project together, really. There's like there's five people that we both collectively know together. Mm-hmm. Spoke Mutumbo from South Africa. Leo from Awesome Agency. DJ Wall, Glenn Brady. I can't remember who the other two are right now. But there's another two people that collectively were, were like, um, and, well, separately actually, but collectively for us because we knew them. We're going, oh, you need to meet this guy. You need to meet that guy. You know, Shimon, you need to meet this guy in Ireland. You're kind of on the same buzz. Same, same. Yeah. So, so where did the actual meeting take place and where did this summit occur? Sounds like the UN type thing. <laughs> I mean, you, you can tell it from your side to start. Um, I mean, the initial meeting... Happened at a party, coming together at the party, and I mean it's kind of hard to to tell the the details <laughs> like, well, legally. Well, there was, yeah, I mean, that. there's been a few. There's been a few. I mean, one, like I think the plead the fifth. Right, I gotta come up with a PG thirteen version for this one. Well, you know the mattress at the top of the warehouse <laughs> in the meatpacking district in Brooklyn. Well, DJ uh, drum and bass DJ Hell, not the German DJ Hell was playing. And I stood on someone's um, art, which was actually an outfit they were wearing that was made out of piping that you put around copper pipes, but I didn't realize it. And um, they were really offended. So I decided to move out of that space and walked into the mattress room. The intergalactic (laughs) mattress room is what it was called. And lo and behold, there's, I'm not going to say there was a harem in there, but there was a gaggle of people with a centerpiece amongst the people. And... This was the centerpiece. <laughs> and I was like, who is this? And, and then sparks flew. And then we got chatting and it was like, right, that's, uh, we know, you know, such and such. He told me blah, 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 blah. So it was kind of, it's almost like a randomness being in the same place at the same time, really. And then making the connections like anything in life, really, you know. So it wasn't like an organized meeting type thing. It was kind of like you just happened across him. You were like, oh, you're that dude that I've been told about so much. Yeah, yeah it wasn't organized. It. it wasn't planned oh, at wow. all. Okay, so that's like proper cosmic shit. Cosmic. Yeah. Fairly cosmic, you know, and uh, I think then we connected on Facebook. <laughs> First it was Facebook. Actually, it wasn't even. It was email. It was email. <laughs> yes. Yeah, wow, like, that was, that's kind of advanced then, wasn't it? We were actually for the email first. It, yeah, I don't think there was much of the other shit, there really. There wasn't, because yeah, right, we, we, we sent you some tracks. Yeah, that, yeah, they sent tracks. I don't remember. Like, I didn't even know what you guys looked like. Yeah, we never spoken on the phone. We worked, we started working together, and the process was slow. It was like over, you know, six months to a year of just talking, yeah. and then we got a track together, sent it, and um, when the track landed with Shaman, he, you know, it's probably we didn't he didn't hear back from him for about six weeks, you know, or whatever. But he was obviously busy doing what he was doing in the meatpacking district. In the meatpacking district, Harim, and then um, <laughs> and then this that this track arrived with his vocals on the track we'd sent him. And we had to listen to it, and we were like, man, these vocals are amazing. Mm-hmm. But this track we sent them is just not doing it justice. We're going to have to rewrite the track. So we were like, right, let's get in the studio straight away. Went in, 
and we rewrote the track completely to his new to his vocal that he sent us and made the first track we did bougie which you know it, it was a year later after we met basically yeah. and then and then we kind of like we were like didn't know what to do with it and I sent it to five people. I sent it to Tiga. I sent it to Errol. I sent it to Ashley Beadle. I sent it to a guy from Pias Recordings, and I sent it to someone from Warner Brothers. And um, the first person to get back was the guy from Pias, and he, and he was like, "I want it," and signed it straight away immediately. Awesome. Yeah, and then the, a couple of the others came back like weeks later, but it was gone at that stage, you know. So and that's how it started. Yeah. So am I right in understanding that Bon Voyage NYC is kind of like a collaboration project between a number of people but you two guys are kind of the soul and the core of it in terms of a performance base and the faces of it and the voices in this case. Exactly. Exactly. Because we, 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 actually when it started it was the two of us and Gucci Cortez aka Misk aka Phil who's <laughs> 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 was like uh, a really you know Phil and I go back to the RV and the Misk days and he's just um a scientist yeah. of sorts. Scientist man <laughs> in the studio. So he, um, so but he basically, you know, sometimes life gets in the way of music and stuff. He had two kids, are amazing. Got he's married. His wife's great, and he got a job in a tech company in Dublin. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know that where that goes. And, yeah. And we and respect to him, he was just like, listen, I still want to work with you guys, but you know, I won't have as much time. And then we just we were like, you know, this is actually great because I mean we can open up a third seat at the table. Yeah. It can be a three chair scenario. And then invite people to come in all the time. Like a rotating seat, kind of like when people go for office and shit. Like. <laughs> Ashley Beadle, I understand, produced a couple of bits for you. I know you're close with him. Yeah, man. He's, he's done their new single, which is, we haven't got a release date. We've, we've been trying to release it since last summer. Since the end of last <laughs> summer. September. It was, it was, we were start trying to release it in September, actually. But um, he's done uh, himself and Joe Wallace and Darren uh, and myself and Siobhan got into the studio about a year ago and we knocked out this track called Hey Power. Which has been getting quite a bit of rotation from um, Nightmares and Wax George. He's played it like a lot, a, lot, a whole know? lot, <laughs> like on his boiler room and in his Phonic Alive, and he's like really championed it for us. And yeah, and it's just a wicked acid house record, really. It's got the Ashley Beetle funk in it as well. Mm-hmm. So the five of us kind of melted melted on that one, and you know, put it into the mix, and that's going to be coming out in F Star Clear. Um, there's some remixes in the pipelines, and yeah, we're working on some other stuff as well. So. The one thing that always struck me about your project, I remember when you first sent it to me, like going back years, and I remember thinking, I, I, I kind of, you were quite mysterious about it because I was like, is this you? Is is this a friend? And you were kind of like, yeah, sort of, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> you know, just take the track and listen to the music. And I remember playing on the radio, I was like, I really like this, but I couldn't kind of compartmentalize it alongside anything else that I was listening to. I kind of found it very hard to kind of liken it to anything. It was very yeah. much out there on its own, which is like, of course, a fantastic thing when you're making art. But who are the influences to you? It's really interesting because I think for us, we were trying to do something that no one else was doing. And that's a really difficult path to go down. It is. But the long game of it is a good thing. But in the short term, it's like, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't trying to do like, what, EDM or you know mm. or kind of go for like mumble rap you know right. or we're not we're what the stuff that was kind of the hype of stuff that had a short not a short like life but it was like we were like let's actually find something that we both love that's actually why yeah. we, we got on because we want I was so we're both obsessed with hip house music from the 90s mm-hmm. we wanted to be different but we wanted to be rooted at the same time like hip house and those things were the root you say yeah completely it was the root you know we both have a love from for um, you know uh, Midtown 80s New York, you know, the classic Andy Warhol, Debbie Harry meets the Basquiat, 
you know. Um, oh, yeah. OG hip-hop crew, Zulu Nation, you know, kind of that combination of, of, of fashion, Vivian Westwood's. The buffalo hats that Shimon has been rocking for the last year or two. Oh, and I'm going to come back to that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk buffalo we hats. We got to stories, the buffalo man. crown. But you know, so we have all this mutual respect for stuff and love for stuff. So, it, so it's for us. It's never a dull moment because the thing is, I know there's the stuff, the stuff that he's on that I'm going to be loving, and he knows the stuff that I'm on that he's going to be loving. So yeah, it's it's a, it, it's, it's exciting a, all the time. It, it's exciting all the time, you know. And it's a, it's it's weird. It gets to a stage now where it's like I'm like we, we buy things for each other. Mm. without consulting should around and they'll just <laughs> yeah. arrive and you'd yeah. be like what the hell's this you know because we're like very much very much different but very much kind of on a similar cosmically path. in tune yeah but hip house is the is the kind of religion for us you know and it's kind of the the OG mood yeah, board exactly yeah, and it was about exactly. taking that style that Shaman had of being able to rap over dance records but and taking that influence and making something new and just trying to because a lot of the hip house stuff wasn't made very well and it was fairly loose but we we're trying to give it a narrative and mm-hmm. you know make it more of a dance culture kind of vibe for what's happening now we're going to throw it back because as soon as we're talking about hip house and uh, and early influences and things like that shimon you grew up in japan yeah what's the story there basically um my mom was like a single mom uh soldier so she was like on the base there i kicked it off like was pretty much um I was going to uh international school in Japan so I studied with a bunch of different students and people from different cultures and different places from around the world but pretty much I was my mom felt really safe about just Tokyo and everything so she just let me run off and run about by myself and just explore stuff so I kind of just really kicked off and kind of doing ciphers and stuff outside of clubs like just battling soldiers was like really my first little teeth cutting with music it was just like that was exciting for me to like be able to uh beat adults out in competitions and then they go back to work and my mom gets bragged to about how her kid was out there couldn't even get in the club but he's out there eating the soldiers lunch so that was fine that's okay <laughs> i'm assuming this would have been like japan in the 90s a little bit further back, yeah. Okay, I don't want to give further away. Further forward, yeah. Because like, I've seen a great code. I've been to Tokyo twice. I'm obsessed with Japan. I'm obsessed with Japanese culture. And I'm like, just Asian metropolises. That's what it is. Like, for me, it's just like, man, it's like acid overload. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like living 10 years in the future anytime you're in Tokyo. Like, there's still stuff that they had going on that still hasn't hit the shore. It's like holographic you could get holographic images printed out of a vending machine like you can't go anywhere and get a holographic image printed so they're doing that like everyone asks me a lot about like drinking and just like you know consuming stuff everything you need you just get it out of vending machine oh yeah it's no problem it's such a culture it's almost like vending machine city yeah i was almost kind of disappointed when i realized that tokyo wasn't all like shinjuku in the case that everything is neon right right yeah it is a bit sad when you go to the countryside everything's just kind of temples and i mean it's beautiful it's very clean but like no neon lights even Tokyo itself, though, do you know what I mean? Because there's so many, like, kind of little microcosms within the city. Oh, yeah. I expected everything to be just neon craziness. And when yeah. I got there, I was kind of like going, oh, I, like, obviously I'd researched it before I went, so I kind of knew that ahead of time. Right. But, like, I really wanted to go to Harajuku, of course. And yeah, man, because, like, all those subcultures within subcultures, like, they really take on a liking for something and really, mm-hmm. like, passionately go after it. Oh, That's yeah. what I like a lot about it. It's like, you can pretty much be whatever you want to be, like... It's like a culture for it, like 
was really into the Spies tribe stuff as well. That is one thing that I will like totally agree with in that the Japanese culture they become consumed by things yeah, whether it's fashion no it's matter like, what it is like they really go hard for it like they don't tap light on it at all nah. they just be it like be it like fashion doing up their cars even yeah. their sex industry is so yeah. crazy you got it's so the, crazy like the eels and tentacles yeah. and mad things I've, like, I've got a great story of a friend who was in Tokyo and he wandered off and you know, the way around Shinjuku they have like lots of touts and guys kind of trying to bring um, gaijan to, to, into other clubs away exactly. from, where, from where the Japanese guys yeah. are going and somehow my friend ended up in this uh, little small theatre with a load of Japanese salarymen and he described it as something like out of a David Lynch movie uh-huh. right and I almost wish I was there to see this yeah. because basically what happened was it was a cabaret kind of a, a burlesque thing with the chick stripping and these mm-hmm. big kind of fan things blocking and then eventually she was totally naked yeah. you think okay just normal strip club whatever but no this is where it got really fucking David Lynch-esque okay like real okay. proper Mulholland Drive <laughs> thing right and this is like, it's it. amazing so I'm Basically, at the end of the show, she gets down off the stage and sits in like an armchair in the mm-hmm. corner and all the salarymen queue up mm-hmm. really respectfully, drinking their whiskey. When you get to the top of the queue, you asked her to pose in a certain way. Now, yeah. remember, she's naked, right? Uh-huh. This is a sex club. So she would pose. They would take one picture of her on their mobile phone and then they would bow respectfully and leave. And then the next in line would ask to pose. It sounded like the most crazy strip club experience burlesque type right. thing I've ever heard of and like that's only, that's only scratching the surface right, over there that's the most polite oh that just goes to show how polite they are oh yeah know, completely like. completely we don't mean to paint them as all sexual deviants yeah, I'm sure right, there's much worse very, stuff that goes on but we're just saying that very polite. In, in the terms of like that they're so into their subcultures and, yeah. and their, their subgenres and everything that goes on do you speak fluent Japanese then? not fluent like very light because it's like traveling so much. I've been to so many places where people don't speak a lick of Japanese for so mm-hmm. many extended periods that you kind of just lose it. But also, a lot of my fashion dealings are done right currently with Japan. So it's kind of, you kind of just like, it's muscle memory. Like a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff just comes back and it's really advantageous to be able to dig in and let those things spark and let it all come back to you as far as communicating. Because a lot of, Japanese, um, they don't really speak English that well, no, of so it's kind of hard to communicate unless you actually can understand and reciprocate things back when doing dealings. The thing that I found interesting was that I almost feel the internet somewhat ruined Tokyo for me because you were able to do so much research, whereas I saw somebody talking about when the first wave of kind of OG UK streetwear heads started going mm-hmm. to Japan. Like we're talking James Lavelle and like yeah. Ian Brown and people were going to things like that. They were saying yeah. that like, even I think it was the Beastie Boys may have given the quote saying that going to Japan in the 90s was like going to a different planet because you'd never it's seen true, it before. man. It's so true. Like, seriously. Like, I can't believe it even now. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is that I almost kind of felt that when I got there, a lot of the electronic stores that I would have fantasized about in the 90s, these crazy six floor yeah. things, it's almost like just having six Harvey Normans now on top of each yeah, other to man. an extent, you know? But when you go there and the intensity of the shopping Bro. and it's just such a bustling Seriously. metropolis, you know? It's like going to Times Square all the time, like with that kind of feeling. If Without there. people dressed as Spider-Man and Captain exactly. America trying to, trying to and the naked cowboy. That shit. <laughs> oh man, that guy. So you came back to America in your late teens. I believe your uncle was a big uh, influence music-wise. Yeah, my uncle was uh, actually a hip-house artist himself that eventually um, got into raptivism and then wound up getting signed by Jello from the Dead Kennedys. So that whole spin, and he wound up doing a whole bunch of tours with like 
Public Enemy, Digital Underground, Spearhead, bunch of those ones, and then wound up just like I think he actually once once after a point of all that he got into the symphony orchestra stuff. So he actually would have been uh, one of the first rappers to actually do a live performance with the California Symphony Orchestra. That's insane. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like to watch that those clips on YouTube, pretty dope. So would he have influenced your musical taste a lot, or would you yeah. have had some before you left Japan in terms uh, of US hip hop? Honestly, like as far as the structure, because he kind of his whole like structure image wise and uh sound wise was kind of just all of what i knew so from that i kind of took in all the whole public enemies the ex clans uh the parises all the like politically conscious driven rap so that was kind of like my spectrum for a real long time and then with a little twist of electronic and dance and house stuff so it was kind of natural for me to have like the punk side as well as the the dance and electronic side because that's just what I was like raised on because my aunt like even my aunt she was like one of the first like what would have been known as like an afro punk mm. or something like that she like was really with all that and um had to deal with a lot of stuff growing up and she like watched me from time to time if I go over to the U.S. for a summer or whatever and um just like being under her and just like learning about a lot of other different elements of like punk and rock and all those so it just all mixed in together going back home for me being the only like other kid in the family that took on rap to like kind of carry on what my uncle was doing mm. I get the feeling there was kind of quite a political or social consciousness to the music you were into as well yeah big time and I mean I kind of get it because my um my grandfather was like a tank commander so wow. like it was like a really big like military like militant influence just like as far as the structure and just the mind state because that's the way they were raised like my grandmother was like a military nurse and it's just kind of like just what we knew so like the militant mind state but i feel like it's good like creating a person like as far as like the artist you are so you have like all the perspectives like of it all unfortunately i have dublin not as glamorous (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I love Dublin. That's I mean, great. Dublin not as glamorous, but That's definitely glamorous. Dublin. It's got um, its history. It's got its history, and it rolls deep, you know. And it's so deep, you know. Growing up in Dublin, and you know, rap music. My first introduction to rap music essentially is N.W.A., Body Count, Public Enemy. So quite radical, radical mm-hmm. message. There's a message in that, and you're like, you know, whatever you are, thirteen, fourteen years of age, and you're getting hit with this political yeah message message the weird thing is it's still the same <laughs> the message <laughs> that's what that goes to say changed, like, all around the, clothes, the world the same song you like, know it's like they can, those songs are still relevant today as they were back then yeah. it doesn't seem like probably even more changed. so given the state of uh, the affairs in the US so know? true yeah. like they're even more important now because it's like it's really bizarre really you know so I think but I, I mean I grew up on a diet my, my background is I guess like revolutionaries essentially but my family are Irish from Cavan originally they moved to Westmeath they're big into the GAA you know there's <laughs> my uncle's like did you ever line out? I, I, you know I played for Ballyboat in St. Dennis in <laughs> no way. Dublin yeah, so, what position? Uh, full forward no way yeah it was yeah. good you were the superstar I, I used to smack goals in my fist <laughs> like bandit <laughs> then, I, then I kind of dried up after that but I enjoyed it my, my, my grandfather was a big GAA man when I when I was going to the secondary school I didn't play Gaelic they um, my uncle and had a word at my granddad and he drove to Dublin 
unannounced but called into the gaff brought me down to Ballybud St. Dennis and signed me up and was like you have to play you're of age now we're big family GA people you're the but you you're need the, to continue the lineage you gotta go so mm-hmm. I was like some okay. Game of Thrones GAA shit so it's proper Game of Thrones I mean, they're all big into it you know they're like big my uncle's like the chairman of the West Me GA you know <laughs> so, so like all even the girls were playing it you know so uh so that's kind of you know I've, you know they're big music people they're like classic Irish stand up and sing songs you know and all okay. the songs are the heartfelt you know emotional you know so everyone sings and then my dad's <laughs> born in South Africa he was in the ANC he came to London studied in London and ended up in Dublin because there was less spies in London wow. and it was safer for, for ANC activists and Ireland welcomed them because we were brothers in arms you know mm. and Kent you know because we were going through similar struggles so yeah, it was, and he's Indian, you know, he's of Indian origin. Mm-hmm. And in South Africa, when apartheid happened, everything is very much like in the Indian areas, you might as well be in, in India. Yeah. You know, everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was definitely more like culturally, the way India is, you have different segments of society, but they're all together as Indians, you know. Or, mm-hmm. So, South African Indians have been in South Africa for 250 years. So, wow. they're very different from Indians. You yeah. Know, and they're very, you know, and they have their own thing going on. So, that, you know, ha- listen to like all the Bollywood movies and all the Asian mu- music and the Indian music and then having this whole Irish cultural thing and then having this African thing going on. Quite a, yeah. a, a mixture, melting quite pot. a mixture, you know, and, uh, you know, we would have been kids, you know, we would have been part of the apartheid movement and just being around that. Kader Asmal, who was on Mandela's, you know, council, you know, Mandela's cabinet. And just, you know, we, even we, were, we stay at my folks' house when we're in Dublin. And uh, I've got a, a wardrobe in, in the spare room that Jermon oh, yeah. stays in and it's full of trainers, you know. It's a museum. I was digging in there, like pulling some stuff out and, I, and the, these posters just fell down on me and they were like from Pristine. The, pristine. They were never used. They were from the, you know, the original elections of the, from the post-apartheid, the first elections. There was, wow. there was a series of seven posters because my dad's cousin was the, took a seat in parliament when he went back to South Africa and he, he was, um, he was heavily involved in politics, but a lot, a lot of my dad and his mates stayed. They married Irish women and didn't go back. I mean, where would you go back? You know, yeah. like, in a lot of ways. Some of them yeah. went back to do, do the business and they just changed, you know. You know it wasn't safe. It's not a safe, it's not a safe country, man. You was know? your dad mm-hmm. ever lured into playing guy? No, but he, <laughs> he was brought to like, uh, he was brought to, when he, when he went, went oh, to ask no. my, my grandfather to marry, for permission to marry my mum, he was brought to a cattle auction. <laughs> In Mead, and he, my, he didn't understand a word. Then he was brought to a Gaelic football game, mm. and they didn't really understand each other. My dad couldn't understand what my granddad was saying, and it was just like, but there was a mutual respect. They were just sussing, but my granddad was mm. just sussing them out, seeing what the story was. I think my dad is like, as an Indian man, he was the first black person in West Mead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? so you know, it's kind of it's funny. I'm only but, laughing because I'm imagining him playing. Playing. I can't even imagine. I never asked him, you know. My dad's a bit, he's a, he's a, he's a dark lord, you know. He's, a, he's got like his many secrets. He just, he just, one day I was going through some old papers and I found he was like a yoga, yogi, <laughs> a yogi. Back then he had like a, he had a pamphlet and he was like, he had long hair. Like you do now. Like, 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 and he was that. doing like, he was like a yoga master. I was wow. like, what? You were a yoga master? And he was wearing shades like these actually, no lie. He was like wearing some like, some gold, like, oh, I swear. Like, <laughs> I was always doing a thing. I was like, you never tell yeah. me this. He's like, yeah. Right. I, was, I was like, that's some pimp sounding yoga. Straight I up, mean, though, I right. mean, he's, he's a bit of a G, my dad. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, he's, we, we're very like each other. We're piss takers and, uh, yeah. you know, we clash, but we actually have the same sort of humor. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, he's, he's, you know, I guess he's been through a lot. You know, I remember, I remember going to see that Steve, B, he would have been on Steve Biko. He would have been, who should have been what Mandela was. 
You know, mm-hmm. he, if Pico was alive, he would have been the, the, the leader of, of South Africa. Maybe it would have been a different South Africa, maybe not, but Mandela was great, I guess, to a certain degree, but he, what could he do? It was a, it's a diff- yeah. difficult, you know, throne to take, you know, but mm-hmm. um, I remember going to see Cry Freedom with my dad and then just like, and at the end of it, it's like a list of all, you know, political activists who'd been murdered during the regime and he was like picking them out, you know. No way. People he knew, you know, a few mm-hmm. people he remembered and, you know, it's pretty hardcore. In terms of the DJing end of things, so like hip hop was kind of an early diet of thirteen, fourteen. At one point, when when I was coming through, when like I got my first decks at what sixteen, seventeen, and then you know the, the kind of the gigs and stuff that followed, it kind of felt like that there wasn't a club poster in Dublin that your name wasn't on. Damn, I don't know. Like I mean, yeah. <laughs> and a festival lineup, and it's probably still like that to this day in this country. But we spoke earlier just um, before we got involved here. We were talking about your radio show that you did, and it was alongside Johnny Moy. So like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I always kind of felt that like you were almost like the protege of that influx crew. Kind of, they did their bit in the '90s, and they kind of, you know, put down the ladder, and they kind of brought you along and instilled in you what they did, but let you do your own thing too. Yeah, very much so. We were out with Johnny last night or the other night, you know, and um, I, you know, night, we yeah. and we played this set, and um, I was like, you know, he just comes to me and he goes. Um, Listen, man, that was a great set. It's just, you know, so so good to see you play and you've always had your own little thing. And I was like, yo, dude, to be honest with you, if it wasn't for, like, the likes of yourself, Scurry, there's another guy, Dave Hales, you know, all our crew who were around that time, you know, you guys taught me everything I knew and just let me do my own thing and never judged me and never tried to hamper what I was doing or Influence us. Yeah, I mean, they were just like, these are the tools, go do it, be, be, your, be your own boss, you know. And uh, How did you become involved with that crew? You know, it's, it's, I mean, through, initially through my sister, because she was in a big raver basically back in the day, and she was friends with all that crew, and they kind of were the Temple of Sound heads and sides, and, you know, they, were, they all became friends. There was a massive gang of them, Irene Shader and Peter Kendricks and, you know, you know Billy Scurry, Johnny, uh, you know, Leanne Jones, and all these, this crew of people that I kind of looked up to. Mm-hmm. And I was aspired to be them. They were wearing Michiko Kashino. They were wearing Duffer. They were in Stussy. They had like Billy Scurry's trainers were always like fly, you know, and they were like a, just ahead of the pack and they stood out because they were nonconformists, you know, mm. in Dublin. And they had this whole thing going on. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I want to go to Radar, save my money up and buy a <laughs> Stussy t shirt <laughs> for like 35 quid, which was like a lot of money. Oh, dude, right. <laughs> I can remember the 90s, right, being horrified. Was Radar the place in Stevens Green yeah. on the second floor? Still there. It's probably still there. I don't know. I think it's, yeah. I'm not sure. There was, all I remember was a place, it's kind of in the middle, second floor of Stevens Green on the opposite side when you come in from the park. That's it. And I remember seeing like a tartan Stussy hat and my first introduction to Stussy was like Brian Harvey and E17 wearing it, right? So I'm like 13 and uh, I remember seeing, I was like, oh, that's those hats the lads from E17 wear. And then I discovered it was like 40 pounds Irish for the cap. And like when you're 13, 40 pounds Irish for a cap is insane money. Like I was buying Chicago Bulls stuff and collecting ba- basketball NBA hats that were like, you know what, maybe... 10 to 15 but like 40 quid for a hat was just in the, today's money it's about 4 million euros <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, I mean it was you know it was wild it was wild man so I, so I was like my sister was involved in a subculture you know she I she was dating a DJ he left a lot of records in the house one time I just was listening to them going what the hell what is this music listening to like the original Sabres of Paradise stuff mm. all the all the underworld stuff the original stuff going and all this weird house and techno going, this is just hypnotic, you know, mm-hmm. hypnotic. And I just got on the, I just got the bug and just went straight into it. And what age were you at this stage? 
about 14 okay you know so about 14 and then um it just was it's an obsession it's hard to it's like because you're when you're that age you're a sponge you're, I don't think you ever stop being a sponge as a as a music aficionado or a musicologist or a DJ or whatever, but I just couldn't get enough of it, you know. And I started, you know, hanging out with anyone who would, and you know, tailing people and trying to go to gigs and just being like, because you know, I was I was sober as a judge all mm. the time and I was young, so I wasn't getting involved in any madness. And some of them kind of knew me, and you know, they were probably doing whatever they were doing, and that you know, they gave us respect, I guess, but. I never stepped over the line. I remember meeting Weatherall, going to the temp- trying to go to the Temple of Sam when I was about fifteen. Mm. Couldn't get in, right? But I, but I, but they were all in the pub. But Weatherall and I didn't even know who Weatherall was. Was but I'd been in town and they were going to this pub, and I wanted to go in and meet Johnny and Bowie because I was like, I want to meet. Can I meet them? And she was like, Come around to the pub. Came around to the pub. They were busy, and I just sat down next to this guy with a beard, English guy with loads of tattoos on his arms. I mean, he'd never remember this, but uh, I was like sitting next to this guy, looking at him, going, and I was like, he's got British tattoos on his mm. arm. He's got a British flag tattooed on his arm. I was like, here, mate, storage your tattoos. And he was like, <laughs> what, mate? And I was like, yeah, there's ta- you've got like a British flag. You mad? Do you know where you are? Like, this yeah. is like the north side of Dublin, down the Keys, you know? And he's like, oh, mate, you know, got years ago and all that. And then just having started having this conversation with this guy for about half an hour and no one else was talking to him probably because they were afraid to speak to him because it was Lord Sabre mm-hmm. and I just had this conversation with him as like a 15 year old that went on for about half an hour about stuff and um, and then I was like well, I have to go because I've got to go home I'm not able to go he was like oh I'm DJing in the club I was like alright right, cool I've got to go I just, want, I just came in to meet Billy and Johnny and they're not they're too busy to talk to me so I'm going to go <laughs> <laughs> you had essentially leveled up without realising us. Yeah, I mean, I was like, and he was like, oh, mate, you, you can't come at all. And, and then I was like, left. And I started going and I was like, oh, that's, that English guy is actually quite nice. He looked a bit weird. And, I, you know, and I, and I had this amazing conversation with him. And um, she was like, that's Andy Wetherall. You don't know who he is. And I was like, no, who is he? You know? And then I went off, you know, and I forgot about that whole thing for years. And then obviously, and even like, like it was about five to 10 years later, like at least, that I'd been the penny dropped. And I was like, that was Weatherall. You know, about five years ago, <laughs> I actually met Weatherall years ago. Mm. It must have been like, well, I mean, it must have been, I kind of mean five to ten years, probably about three years later when I kind of copped, copped who it was and it was like, right, actually surpassed what I'd intended to do. But for me, Weatherall, Johnny, Billy, Scurry, all these guys are the same, you know, because mm. they still have that ethos of sticking to their guns. We saw Billy play the other night and, He's still, you know, he, he's still the same man he was when I first saw him. He's doing his thing. He never changed. And the weather all's the same. You know, people like Errol Alkin are the same. You know, it's just those kind of, you know, they just do their thing. Mm, they've nothing to prove, kind of. Nothing to prove. They just have a love yeah. for music, you know. Like, you know, we're the same, I guess. You're the same, man. You're, yeah. you're someone who's always been into your music. I, you know, we, we just, we don't change. We just yeah. still have a love for what's good in our own vision and keep chasing the dream, you know, mm-hmm. so... The only thing that changes is the clothes. <laughs> uh, Dublin Distribution. You work there, am I right? I did do, do some work at Dublin Distribution. I s- helped set it up with Eamon Doyle. It was an offshoot of his D1 thing. It was an offshoot of D1. Um, I was heavily involved with D1 Records. Um, I lived pretty much in Parnell Street, even though I wasn't living there all the time. It was Graham O'Sullivan and Eamon. And we ran the record shop. We ran the club night. We ran the label and we ran a distribution company collectively there was lots of people involved it was really interesting i you know just 
I sold loads of records to people. I don't know if we made any money or got the money back on <laughs> some of them, you know, because you know, it only lasted a few years. But at one stage, we had like 20, 19 or 20 labels, wow. all Irish labels. It was, it was quite, you know, it was quite an interesting time and it felt like something could happen. But I think if that was happening now, it would probably do even better. Oh, of course. You know, now would be the time for something like that to happen because there's so many great people making music. But it was like Daniel Jacobson and you had Decal and you had all these kind of, you know, I think Slug and Droid even had a label and. You had all these people just making music, you know. It almost feels kind of like Dublin is recreating that now somewhat, but with an urban twist, because there's so many Irish hip-hop acts and yeah. soul acts coming out of Dublin right now. So many. It's like a whole, I mean, just, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's the choice of, mu- of music, I think, for the voice of that generation, you know, and they're like coming through really strong. And you have, you know, you have the people who are like at the top of it, the Erica Cody's who are like really smashing through and, you know, people like Jafaris who have like led the way and, you know. I'm actually really excited about Dublin hip hop myself. Like mm. just over the last years, just like finding and discovering new hip hop acts out of Dublin that I never even heard of and just being able to go back home to the US and like play them to people and I just like, yo, what the hell is this? And it's like so dope because it's really like I feel like they're sticking to traditional formats surprisingly unlike a lot of other countries when they're like taking their take on hip-hop or western type of rap i feel like dublin's just full-on just doing it proper i think it's beginning to get to that stage as well whereby the accent has kind of just become secondary whereas before that was always a big thing it was always like mm-hmm. oh you're rapping in an irish accent yeah. and then people were putting on fake accents it's almost like this generation have accepted this is what i sound like this is the music i'm into if you don't like it fuck you i think that's you know? what i love about it because you hit it right on the head with that i think that's what i get out of it i don't even think it's a dublin thing either i mean we're like um you gotta look at the lads of you're America, right you're right you're right hoover and you know um hazy uh, and all those guys are just like mind-blowing so good and you know, I think it's, I think it's, I think really Irish hip hop in general is just in general, voice. Yeah. The Kojaks leading the way, and you've had Reggie Snow coming through, like, and but I think Reggie, you know, did his own thing, and it was a certain thing. But I feel mm. the stuff that's coming through now is almost like taking it to the next level. Mm. The Kojak stuff is like the tribe called Quest. That's I listen amazing. to that Kojak stuff a lot. Honestly, like when I was saying Dublin, I was actually speaking of more of the whole of Ireland. Oh yeah, like, of course, yeah. of course. I, yeah. I love that thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I meant, like, in my mind, but I was just thinking short, like, just initially. Yeah, of course. It was really a big spectrum of it. I mean, there's so many of them. I love that yeah. thing Boiler Room do with Softboy Records with Kojak and everything, and you see them all in the gaff just writing music <laughs> and then going to play Electric Picnic, and it's just, like, it's just a gang. Do you know? It's just a mm. gang of young lads who are having fun, love music, and they're just doing it because they're into it. You know, They're not mm. doing it to be famous or to make money, and it's just that's all kind of coming with it to an extent, and like the profile that's building off the back of that. But at the core of it all, there's, it's, it's not too contrived or anything. You know, it's, no. it's, 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 it's honest. just pure. It's, yeah, it's honest and it's pure. That's, that's the mm. vibe I get from it. Shimon, you were back in America at this stage, and you were studying fashion design yeah, or something? Yeah, I was doing fashion. I, um study footwear and handbags to be honest so you're a demon with a scissors and a sewing machine oh yeah i don't even need a machine could do it all with my hands really my human sewing machine that is very sexual (laughs) it's like that it's it's like that you know (laughs) (laughs) i've seen some of the bits that you've created some very pop culture-esque things the lector mask is it the lector mask was in gucci and in yeah the lector was lv the Louis Lecter. And you cutting up handbags or where's the material? Oh, from? I'm just destroying the handbags. Like, I've put people in the tears several times. For real? Yeah, because that was the thing. I'm just be like, you just bring me your 
bag and I'll show you something. So I dissected it like to the screw, to all the all the elements, zippers, everything, take it all apart and then uh usually put it back together in form of a moccasin. It's like the main thing, but couldn't do it in any other ways, but my favorite ones like that. And it, like these are obviously like I said materials then that people would offer to you to do something with. Isn't yeah, it? that's the thing. Bags. The the service pretty much presents itself as you bring me your bag and I'll, I'll repurpose it, it. I'll repurpose it into something else. What are some of the more out there things you've done? Like we've, we've spent the Louis the Louis V Hannibal Lecter mask is incredible. Yeah, that was fun doing the um did a whole bunch of Gucci boom boxes for a while. Was doing a whole lot of those. Um, what's had to be some of the most crazier ones? I don't know. Uh, one day, I think it was uh, one of the delivery services delivered a bunch of food one morning, and I just was kind of up off the session and basically seen it mapped out in my head. Once I emptied out all the food, put it in the refrigerator, I seen all these bags, and then for some reason, I just seen a vision of this like this like tracksuit. So I basically just pulled out the scissors and the adhesives and all that and just kind of just turned all these shopping bags into this like huge transformer looking looking uh tracksuit it's pretty crazy <laughs> and do you hold Sounds on bizarre. to these things or do you sell them as art pieces or what's the, what's the um thing? i sell them as art pieces um it just all depends like i sell a lot of stuff as art pieces i put a lot of stuff on display different shops different gaffs like just wherever the traffic is sometimes put stuff in consignment spots but mostly i just people just come to my studio or my showroom and just by appointment everything's for sale so sometimes is this back in brooklyn then or where's this up i had it in brooklyn there's one in la now in terms of luxury brands to repurpose do we have a favorite will, will we louis gucci goyard is very hot right um now. as far as like a favorite I don't actually have a specific favorite because I'm more attracted to like textures as opposed to just visual stamps really. So it just depends cuz like the levels of it like as far as like things that are workable. Like I like working with Louis Vuitton material because you can there's ways that you can let take the layers off so it makes it able easier to be worked with as opposed to sometimes it being so thick you can't really get the needles and all that through certain bits, but a lot of people don't know, but you can actually do a process to it where you can remove it by layers to thin it. So I do a lot of that, so that's fine. That's how I did the the Louis Lecter mask because I was able to take off some layers, thin it out. But I say Gucci just because it's classic. Like It just refers back to all the classic stuff you would think of with the whole Dapper Dan and Mike Tyson and Rakim and all those just going to the shop to get these pieces. So the most iconic material for me to work with is Gucci. I think I'll always work with Gucci because it's just iconic for me, like, personally. I love how the whole Dapper Down thing has come full circle and he's now been employed to create collections. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. It just gives a lot of people hope for a lot of things. Like, longevity is key shouldn't really give up just stick to your focus like even even before the dapper dan like even um gucci ghost like trouble andrew was getting a lot of flack like coming up 
in the New York scene because he was just bombing the system with just the, the Gucci throw ups and then everybody was like, Yeah, they're gonna get you one day and blah blah blah. He was just like gonna get yeah. me paid something. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> Fuck it all, I'm just keep doing my thing, just bombing garbage cans and all that and then um he got hit up and employed. So mm-hmm. it's like, man, just to see that, like why should I be afraid to use these materials? Like, I mean it's giving new life to old shit, so some of the Gucci Ghost bomber jackets are some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. They are. And then the personal hand ones that he's got in his studios, even more ridiculous. Like, this is beautiful. I like to see people's take on stuff. I, want, I know I love the um, Follow the Leader jacket, Eric Mirakeen, that um, <sighs> you saw. It I seen it in real life a couple weeks back. I went to this exhibition in L.A., and they had the jacket in the glass case, and just I almost sick, just man. cried. Had an out of body experience just looking at it. I had an out of body experience <laughs> looking at Shimon's Instagram, looking at it. <laughs> oh man! And then the 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 crown that Biggie wore, the famous crown, was oh, wow. sitting in the case next to it, like all the actual shit. So awesome. Had a lot of Zulu Nation memorabilia. Like it was a good one. One for the head. Speaking of old school things that have been brought back with a modern twist, you name checked it earlier. The Buffalo Hat. How long Ooh. you been rocking that, sir? Say about two years now. Before Pharrell or post Pharrell? Oh, post Pharrell. I get all this. I get. It's funny because like you could tell by the the demographic of the people. I'll either get Pharrell or I'll get like the proper like Malcolm McLaren or Vivian Westwood. But it's funny because it lets you kind of know where people's heads are coming from. But I respect it either way. Like I dig it just for the fact that people know something of, of where it came from because it's so iconic. Going back to what we were saying about like with the whole rap punk thing like i feel like they were kind of pushing hard to bring that going around the world taking the sounds of new york and bringing it back and forth and with england and getting the punk shit going and mixing that up with the rap getting fab five involved and everyone else debbie so and for me it's like a crown guy. you bumped into the yeah guy, it was quite like, that's what i was gonna ask that was quite a serendipitous thing to happen Bro, like that's the cosmic shit for real because like that's the reason that, honestly that excites me so much in life because you can have something as simple as something that you cherish like a hat that means so much to you it took me a long time to acquire this hat because they're so rare and you can really only get them from the maker so anyone that's got them on resale it's like ridiculous you could pay thousands for a buffalo hat really so um i feel like it just embodies a lot of spirit and energy and we were actually at a market in london and lo and behold, like, I meet the guy that's actually Malcolm McLaren's right-hand man. He's in a shop, like, with all this crazy dope shit, like... Herbie. Is that, is that his his name? name was Herbie, yep. Yep. He's part of the original world-class Supreme team. Yep, he pulled out instantly. He, like, bugged out on the hat, pulled out an image of him wearing the hat with Malcolm McLaren just already ready to fire. I was like... This is crazy. So I pulled out my phone and fired one back from like three days ago that I had of the world-class Supreme Team and him right there in the middle. So it's kind of bugged out because it's like you do these things and you don't even realize like the energy you're putting towards stuff. It's on its way back to you. Like it just happens. Like I feel like if those things didn't happen, like that situation wouldn't happen and it kind of really, really needed to happen just to bring things full circle. So it was like a big love and mutual respect and... I managed to get a couple pieces off of them. And for me, that's like, man, it's it's, like, it's really priceless. Like, 
because I was like a big fan of all the fashion and stuff that the whole um, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood and all those were doing and then all the Boy George stuff and he had a lot to do with all those looks and the inspirations for that stuff so just to own a piece of that like legacy piece of that influence influence is like mind-blowing for me like you were saying that you have to get them from the creator. Does the house of Vivian Westwood still produce the hats? It's not even. They don't. You have to get it from World's End. Okay. And like, you only get it from the shop. You can't get it offline. None of that. You got to go to the shop. They switched up shops a few times, but... I always find it crazy when you see, like, I remember when Pharrell wore the buffalo hat to the Grammys and yeah. the world went crazy. And then I saw a picture of him and Nigo from A Bathing Ape yeah. and Nigo had one too. And, like, it's always so funny just how, like, Pharrell can wear anything and pull yeah. it off so much. From, like, Cactus Plant Flea Market right. to Chanel, you know. You know the stories. Vivian West was not happy about that, to be honest. Like, oh, really? she She, like, publicly uh, preferred that he not wear the hat. Okay. Which is interesting. Why? I don't know, because you know she's a punk rock lady. Like, she's okay. not with the commercialism at all. Like, she just felt like it was, like, a stunt. I have no take on it, because I like Pharrell. Like, I mean, I don't mind it at all. But it's just, like, her, she didn't really like it at all. She just really publicly, a lot of times, wished that he didn't wear the hat. Somebody else who was quite punk in their approach to fashion at times. Um, I spoke about this on the podcast to somebody before. Have you seen that Alexander McQueen documentary? I have not. Everyone's been telling me I need to see it. I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. You've seen it? Oh, God, it really, it's mind-blowingly good. I gotta see but this it really damn thing. upset me. You Did know, it? Like it really upset it factor. It my head up. And in the end of it, I was just left like with this vacuum of really uh-huh. just emptiness because I was like, I'm a massive fan of McQueen. Shit, I've man. I've always loved his stuff. I've, you yeah, know, that McQueen, McQueen jacket McQueen you got is, should I've be in a museum. I've got school, full leather McQueen Parker is the first one he did. Fur, with the fox fur, fox fur collar. Shit, fur is not probably the thing to be talking about right now. But <laughs> I meant to say, <laughs> Peter, I meant to say faux fur. I said fox, but I meant fur. Faux fur, and yeah. um, so like you know, I've always been a fan, and you know, with his different phases, and he's such a genius. But then leaving, you know that documentary or finishing it I was just so sad man it took me a few days to get over it like Shit, I know that sounds man. a bit weird but I was just like I felt I really hurt I really felt it inside I was like I can't believe we lost this guy yeah, yeah like it, it is a sad state of affairs particularly with the way he took his own life but yeah. I also found something I found the thing incredibly inspiring to watch completely inspiring I cannot it's, believe I haven't seen it like, it's there's something no matter what kind of art you produce or yeah. anything you're into it's kind of like really inspiring to see somebody who's so pure in their approach yeah. to it I get that level of being the sternness in, in yourself yeah the drive like it's a, it's an amazing watch it's mind blowing and you know, I was living where he was from <laughs> but randomly I didn't realise it till I saw the documentary where <laughs> okay. his mum and that you know the house they were yeah. in I used to live right, right like, like across from it in a building for about a year and I was like I didn't know he was from that block you know and um so for him to go all that way from that block in london was very rare i love the scenes of him in paris when he first goes to the fashion house and he's there working and it's like it's such a fish out of water because they're used to doing it their way and then he's bringing this kind of young punk anarchy kind of to the to an esteemed fashion house in Mm. paris you know and just the way he works i kind of feel it's almost maybe not a little bit too dissimilar to what virgil abloh is doing at louis vuitton now you know, it's like, mm. I think he's kind of almost maybe not pushing boundaries as much, but it's a new approach for yeah. Louis Vuitton. Mm. Yeah. Definitely yeah. a new approach. I mean, new approach. I, I don't know. I, I think, I, I don't know. For me, it's just like, McQueen just, 
really upset the cattle car, you know, and in, mm. in a way that had never, hadn't been done in so long. The, the fact that he was like eating with the workers, you know, the ones that were ignored, that did the lion's share of the work, and he was just put himself on a level with them, mm. leveled the playing field. Yeah. Like it wasn't That's what it's, it's about, man. It was just so unique, you know, and, and fashion is a very fickle business, and it's a very hard business to be involved in, and. It's, it's it's there's very little compassion in a lot of it and I've, you know when you come across it's so different from music and music is a tough game but fashion is even harder to break into and he was doing things that just weren't accepted in in, in terms of high-end fashion you know and really changed the way you see it and you know the, the Virgil stuff I don't really know enough about him apart from what I'm seeing so but he's definitely shaking things up that may not have been accepted. I have to say, like, I was never really a Virgil fan because I always thought him as a, saw him as a bit of a Kanye fuckboy, kind of. You know, there was that infamous <laughs> picture of them all in Paris and they're there with their Louis suitcases yeah. and they're kind of out there. You remember South Park parody? Do you remember that? Great, that's South and Park parody. Was yeah, accurate. yeah, completely. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I, I detest Off-White. I cannot stand it as a label. Yeah. I detested Pyrex when he did it, like, because they were repurposing oh, Ralph great. Lauren, Ralph yeah, Lauren, um, flannels. They would buy those flannels for, like, two bucks from Ruffler and so selling them for like 400 plus, with a print yeah. on the back and I was like like this is a hustle you know and like there's no creativity here and like I said I don't like Off-White I, th- I see it as just a real kind of entry level streetwear type thing but I, I, I like yeah I like the fact though that he's kind of doing something different with Louis Vuitton that he's kind of mm. you know streetwear has kind of crossed over so much into high end brands like Balenciaga mm. you know and Vitamins and things like that are all now massive runway events when they yeah. show at New York and Paris Fashion Week mm-hmm. and I just maybe how do I put this in the sense that McQueen upset the apple cart so much in the 90s I think what Virgil is doing at Louis is not as momentous it's not as, it's not as monumental because streetwear has crossed over into high right. fashion so much yeah. right now but I think if none of that if that crossover hadn't happened it would be such a whoa what the fuck yeah. it would have been like when um, Mark Jacobs got Stephen Sprouse to, to paint all over the Louis bags back that in the was early like version of that now yeah definitely yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that like streetwear has just become a thousand pound tracksuit in brands yeah. you know and you're like a pair of tracksuit pants for a grand yeah. you know or, um, for me a pair of tracksuit pants shouldn't be more than 100 quid mm. exactly 50 like, quid or yeah. whatever you know or even less but you know it was, it's just mind blowing to see it you know like how, how far it's come that you can yeah, wear a, a random pair of tracksuit yeah. pants and a tracksuit top and a pair of Tra- trainers and you could be wearing three grand mm. yeah. without yeah. even putting your underwear on <laughs> you know who's yeah. doing it for you guys fashion wise at the minute oh, I mean um, what brands are you buying are you, like, is there anyone you're kind of following you're watching honestly I don't know I have like a personal obsession with Jeremy Scott anything myself well, what he's doing at Machino or on his own brands all of it everything Every single drop of it. mostly just his own stuff or the Adidas stuff I'm, I've been getting into Catherine Hamnet recently, and then I end up doing a, a gig with her because I just I was really enjoying what she's doing. You know, I've always nice been stuff. a fan. Um, trying to think who else I've been going for. Mm. It's, it's weird because since I started working with your mom, we used to start making Make our, our own clothes. stuff a lot. Like that's the thing. Like really driven towards making our own stuff. That's what we were talking about as well. Like the merch that you guys are putting out is yeah. like. Like there's there's a quality to that sweatshirt you're wearing. Like it's you know it's not it's not a it's not like your average concert tee or or sweat that you pick up. You know, it nice. Like, that was what we wanted to approach to be with just a little bit more than just a kind of a merch piece. You know. Yeah, I mean, we, we it was quite thought out really, and 
and then you know even like picking the colors on the embroidery on this you know and just making sure that the, the right green pops in the right way and that you can <laughs> you can see certain things you know yeah. you know just you know, we, we did some red stuff shorts. Was tested, yeah. yeah it's tested you know and i think it's like we have a whole heap of stuff that we want to do you know and that we can do we have we have basically we're, we're in the process of putting another single out actually beetle but after that we're looking to do the have a nice trip ep part one and two and that's going to be four tracks cover version four tracks original and each track is going to be accompanied by some sort of a video you know also each track is going to be accompanied by a t-shirt design also each track is going to be accompanied by a limited edition golden bear varsity jacket for the track i had a stussy golden bear and i think i wore it like twice i chased it down for years oh, and then when i got it i just I just never wore it and it broke my heart to sell it but I was like oh, it's just uh, going to gather dust and I'm never going to uh, wear it otherwise you know we've got loads of them <laughs> he just found me a uh, Spike Lee like he had to be on the movie set to get this one from uh, Do The Right Thing is this the one with Spike's joint on the back yeah. I've seen her pictures you on Instagram to, you have to be involved with the movie crew to get that stuff I don't even know how I picked he it up magically obtained that it was in Wellington but like the thing about Wellington is that it's it's the capital of the New Zealand music uh, film industry. Mm, so uh, there's cats in that why. industry who probably been been around for a long time. You know, some of them like I was hanging out with Sonny Oranga, and Sonny was the kid of Jake the Mustin, um Once Were Warriors, and there when you you know that his wife is a, is um, Beck is an amazing movie director. She just made this absolutely beautiful short movie about the female flowering in a Maori, uh, traditional Maori culture from years ago, you know, it's, it's just absolutely stunning piece of work. But there's loads of these amazing film people. So I'm, there's no doubt that some of those people were back in Hollywood working in the, you know, in the movie industry in the 90s, you know, and mm. the, the, just to walk into a vintage store in, in um, Wellington and see <laughs> the Spike Lee jacket on the, on the top and then look Man. at the price tag and seeing it's like, converts into 60 quid what? and then I got it didn't know what to do went to the counter I was like is this for sale yes. <laughs> and, 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 and they're like yeah and I was like is this the price and she's like yeah and like, and she, <laughs> like someone who'd never shopped before right, like, yeah, is this for what real? do I do is this price right, right. Like, surely it should be 6,000 not 600 you know and she's like um, no it's 600 bucks you know 600 New Zealand dollars whatever it was and it was whatever it was it was 60 quid and uh, she, I was going I can buy this. And she's like, yeah, you can buy this. <laughs> she must have thought you were just some like, idiot dude out on day release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, uh, you know, because it's a really good nick. It's like hardly worn. Dude, I would have passed like, out first and then woke up and bought it. I yeah, it was mad. Out. It's just mad, you know, like, uh, you don't know where you're going to find these things, yeah. but you're definitely not going to find them in Rough Arnhem in County Dublin, say County yeah. Dublin, but maybe in New Zealand they have, they have a whole like history of like hip hop culture going back yeah. there, you know, from, DJ Raw, who's like DJ Raw, is one of the legends in New Zealand. It goes back to, back in the day to the eighties and stuff, you know. Shit. So, <laughs> like myself, I know shoes are your vice. Shimon, what's yours? Mine, I don't know, man. I really like, uh, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> I like um, what's my vice? What do you I have waste? Many vices. What do you waste countless amounts of money on? I'm so you're a fan of jewelry and a business. Yeah, thing is about that, like. It's like treasure hunting. Like, I honestly spend no money on any of this stuff because it's just a matter of, like, hunting and gathering stuff. Like, really, I think I spend most of anything, like, it's priceless, but I just do a lot of research on stuff. Like, I'm just obsessed with 
useless information. Like, I'm just obsessed with, like, finding images that aren't on the internet. Like, that's the kind of stuff that really makes me excited, to be honest. I just get a lot of inspiration, like, for my music and my fashion just by researching things and, like, looking for images to turn into visual representations. Arv, Air Max One or Prestos, where are we at these days? <laughs> if you had to choose between the two. I have to say, it's the Air Max One at the moment. That just go home. You know, the Prestos have, like, um, I still love the Prestos, but I just, I just got into the Air Max One phase. So... And I haven't really been impressed with any Prestos that have come out. There's like a lot of new incarnations that are just mm-hmm. not doing it for me, you know. Like the like the one, the pair of Prestos I would probably like would be the Australian Olympic team from the Sydney Olympics. There was a really nice pair. That's a really beautiful navy with like some gold um, sort of stitching in it. And then I think I would definitely do a pair of the Hello Kitty Air... Max, no, Hello Kitty Nike Prestos. There was like four done, I think, four different colors, but like two of them were like unreleased. Friends and family. Jobs. I know somebody that yeah. found a pair in the Goodwill in Seattle last year. Nah, man. They were like five bucks. <laughs> Don't break his heart. Right, it broke my heart. That's why I had to break someone else's. <laughs> I, I'll show you the link. Oh, man. So, have you worn the Rainbow Prestos? I still haven't worn them, bro. Okay, do you know this story? Do you know this Rainbow Presto story? I know the rainbows, but not the not the story. Okay, well, there's kind of two stories in one, and you don't even know this, the background of this story, right? To an extent. Oh, you completely streetwear aloofed me one time, right? <laughs> completely and utterly, right? Like, we didn't really know each other at the time. Like, I would have known you were kind of a, a shoe head. You wouldn't have known really a whole lot about me because I wasn't kind of buying at the level that I was over the previous 10 years. But anyway, we're going back. This was one of the oxygen years. And we were backstage and you were rocking around and you had one of these giant ponchos. And if you wind the clock back even further, it was when Adidas did the 83C collection. You know this story? It was basically they recreated four tracksuit tops um, based off one that was found in Goodwill in the States by somebody. And it had a guy's name, Jay Mano, stitched on the arm Mm -hmm. and had 83C on the chest. And I think the red and grey was the original. They made like 100 copies of that. And you had like Liam Gallagher and Nicole Appleton. Like, you know, all the like the Britpop indie heads were wearing them. Then they did like three or four other colours. And I always wanted the yellow one because I remember I saw Pharrell wear it and I saw Oakenfold wear it. Mm. I, I wouldn't be taking my fashion tips from Paul Oakenfold. I'm just <laughs> naming out people. <laughs> just people I remember seeing it. Boom. And uh, it, like it took me a while to track one down. They were, I think the, the first one was 100, 100 copies of it and then every other colour the three other colours there was 300 of each so I eventually tracked one down on eBay I paid like $400 or something Perfect. for it at the time right? Like I was like I was in love with this thing yeah. again it's one of those things I've probably worn maybe three or four times because yeah. I'm such a collector that I don't wear okay. things like I kind of oh, I'm just a nightmare for it I hate myself for it <laughs> but um, so we're back to the lecture at hand is that we were at Oxygen and you had this big giant Adidas 83C poncho grey one with red stripes and like I said we weren't really familiar with each other I think I might have had you on the radio that time and you were very much I'm DJ RV I'm playing tonight blah 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 right? and, I was like, and, I, and I was like yo where'd you get that poncho and you hit me with the biggest streetwear dick move ever you, you looked down at the chest and you went and shrugged him in Adidas and I was like fuck and I was just like yeah I know that like you know come on give me something more and you were just like oh uh, Adidas dude <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I was like, save I'm, the chat. I was like, I'm gonna get him. Oh, we get his ass. You've got me. So, 
You got him because you got the neighborhood, and that's shitting on any of the uh, shit. Yeah, but yeah, but this, this is now that was then. I really oh, wanted shit. that punch. I yeah. want to know what the source of that punch was. <laughs> and do you know, like I've done Google image searches for years afterwards, and never found that poncho anywhere. It was in the the OG colors as well. Was it like gray and red on top with the red stripes? I eventually got one of the jackets because they recreated them or they did a, a rerun of them where they made fucking thousands when they weren't limited. Fifteen years later, but you had the poncho and you sickened me, man. And I was just like. That prick. Oh, I'm going to make him know my name. <laughs> I'm going to make him know my name one of these days. And I did. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to how I did that to him. But go on. What's the truth? Do you want to know the truth? Go on. I'm going to make you sick now. TK Maxx, bro. What? TK Maxx. No wonder you just said I did ask you prick. 1999. TK Maxx. Damn, son. Like, it was a TK Maxx find. I couldn't, like, you know... I didn't, to be honest with you, I did not even know what it was. Yeah. You know, and then I just bought it and then realized it was something of value when a mate of mine had said something to me in, in um, London he was a fashion stylist Graham Cruz was like that's a bit of pretty serious bit of kit you have there and I was like oh, I was paid 1999 for it in 2K Max <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you cool. blanked because you didn't want to admit because <laughs> <laughs> you thought I didn't want to say pennies because like, <laughs> oh, let's be honest if you had a TK Max I would have been like oh man mass produced bullshit but it looks to me like it was some kind of a sample because I don't know if that was ever released no I've never seen it again I've Graham never found it crazy for it like he was like what the hell where is this I've never found it but I always had that I was like I'm going to make him know my name one of these days and I did because now I'm leaving the building. <laughs> yeah, because the Rainbow Prestos were yes. your golden goose. They were your grail. And I remember it was you. I remember, I think I'd spoken to you then. We kind of became familiar with each other and we spoke about this thing and you said it to me like, oh, this, uh, they're the one pair that I really want. And then I saw you interviewing in text um, Liam Howlett from The Prodigy. And Liam was talking about going on tour to Japan and you threw in a little drop. You were like, oh, if you find any Nike Rainbow Prestos, pick me up a pair. So because... I was kind of like very much into OG Bape gear. I was buying like hoodies from Japan back as 2003, 2004. Oh, just that kind of that nice. golden Nego area. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, I suppose the late 90s, early 90s, kind of mm-hmm. the golden Nego area. Yeah. But it was James Lavelle that kind of introduced me to all that. And then like uh, Pharrell kind of caught on as well. And I had that red OG camo hoodie and like a ton oh, of hoodies. Over. I've like I've so much yeah. stuff in the wardrobe right now. And basically, so I bought a lot of stuff off Yahoo Japan auctions. Nice. And I've introduced mutual friends to that oh, since man. and people go crazy for Put it but, on, I, bro. but I remember one day then just browsing some sneaker store on there and I found a pair of rainbow prestos Wow! and I remember I had spoken to you about this before and you said you were a size large and because in Japan as you know they're all quite petite like large shoe sizes are not 10 a penny that was something that broke my heart like I'm a US 10 when I was in Tokyo I was nearly doing well to find yeah. stuff like that you know yeah. like I found this awesome label actually not to digress but um, this awesome label that took uh, influence from the Rolling Stones during the Exile on Main Street period and they had all these tees and like these things were like Exile on Main Street like completely covering it wow. but it only went up to a Japanese size large which oh, is like an EU medium. small yeah, medium small, oh, oh, medium, dude these things yeah. are tiny but anyway yeah so I came across Rainbow Prestos in a size L and I'll never forget just finding it they were for sale and I was like yeah boy I was thinking do I, I buy them boy. No, yeah, I, was like, I was like do I <laughs> buy them do I buy them do I put them on wear them and send them a picture of me well, what do I, I do and I was like nah and then I thought back about that I did ask Poncho and I was like <laughs> and I was like nah nah I just dropped it on his Facebook and I still remember what I wrote and it was just like did somebody say Grail and you were, you were like bro what the fuck are these for sale how do I get these he clapped you back yeah man and I was like well, I can hook you up with a middleman but you had your own middleman and you got it sorted and now you've got the, I think that's years ago now it's that was show, man. but I, like that, that it took you know I had a pair on eBay that were like going for 25 bucks when I first yeah. saw them and someone dissuaded me from buying them who will remain nameless but they know who they are <laughs> and I had to go okay Fucker. 
but it was the one thing that just slipped away, you yeah. know. So that was like, I think I felt like life was complete after that. So yeah. massive respect for that, man. I owe you one. You uh, do. You I do. owe you, you one. Owe one. I forgot about the. If I can go back to the grill question, I actually secretly am obsessed. I do have some grill shit. I I like to collect the the Babe Ambush Creeper collection. I probably oh, nice. Got more than before you cross the Dior yeah I got like I'm probably about four off from having that whole fucking range it's been years and years of just obtaining them because they're so beautiful it's just like a creeper because I love creepers so just like the creeper mixed with an Air Force One Mm. and like a lot of the the new heads they they don't even know what they are because they're like really not branded say Bape on the back and uh, no one knows what they are so ill so many colorways for them so much I always found that a really kind of interesting path that Verbal took because obviously Verbal was in Teriyaki Boys. So yeah, he's actually one of, one, of the, one of my mentors, to be honest. Like, I look at what he's doing. I, th- I think it's fascinating how himself and Yoon kind of cemented themselves in Japan in fashion. And now, like, she's Kim Jones's right-hand woman yeah. at Dior. You know? Yeah, it's rightfully crazy. so. Like, she's built for it. Like, she's doing all the jewelry stuff. And then what she did with Nike recently last yeah. year was... the zip-up <sighs> kind of... It's, it's cross between Gary Payton's glove yeah. and the 180s. Right. See, that's what makes me exciting about, like, life and fashion is when things like that happen, like... I love the cause collaboration. I bought one of the sweatshirts. Oh, nice. I, I did them. like those. I like anything cause does, really. Mm, I love the OG cause chomper hoodie and I was looking at them last night online there's a guy selling one on Reddit and it was a it was the, was it the first round of babe collabs and it was the second round of his babe collab and it's the one with like when you zip it up it's the big teeth the whole way That's and they the were one. saying that like there's none online that haven't got cracked print because of the age and yeah, the thickness yeah, yeah. of the print mine is like DS in the, in the I think I've worn it like maybe once oh, man. do you know what I mean like going back I need to kind of really root through all that stuff and, and see what's what yeah. you know but um, yeah, like just it's crazy when you see. That's what we were talking about earlier about streetwear crossing over to high fashion. Yeah, exactly. You've now got Yoon, who is like one of the big Japanese streetwear heads that yeah. originally with Verbal and Bape. Right, now with and Dior. That's Dior. That's the, I think this the whole standards have shifted now. Like that's like the thing now. It's always going to be having that going on. I feel like going forward, even look at Coach. They're even doing it now. Mm. Their whole new branding and everything is, looks like. I kind of feel though that they've seen the wave and now they're just That's trying to ride. That's what Everyone's like hopping on, and yeah, everyone's hopping on to this now. Uh, name check there. Just the interview where I read about your Rainbow Prestos with Liam Howler from the Prodigy. I know you've got a really close relationship with the boys, and um, obviously it's been an unfortunate, terrible time for them as of late. But how did that relationship? initially grow I remember like there was the hi-fi support slot and there was all this thing like you know oh like Prodigy specifically requested Arvine warm up and I was thinking oh, that's spin doctor-esque in itself anyway but obviously you have a legit relationship and I've seen you at parties with Liam Howlett and stuff yeah, so I mean Liam, Liam is just like I don't know we just became friends we, we, we had mutual friends through like the Oasis lot really because he married Nicole I mean, he married, married Natalie. Nat, Matt married Natalie, and um, I think we should probably name that. Obviously, you have a link to the Oasis camp because Andy Bell is your brother-in-law. Andy Bell is my brother-in-law, and my, before even my sister and Andy connected, she obviously was. She worked with All Saints for years. Oh wow! Okay, she was their tour manager, and she she knew where it was at. She knew where it was at. <laughs> Pure sure all the way, <laughs> and um, so she had this connection with you know when you know obviously Nick started dating Liam G. Um, I guess she was around for all that, you know, and um, and then Nat started dating Liam uh, H. Liam H. And then you, so you had this kind of thing. So I so I mean, obviously, I was always a fan. I knew Liam H. for years before I started even doing gigs with him, you know. Mm. But I was always like, just you know, how's it going, man? Nice to meet you. And then mm. 
fanboy stuff like, like we it's all been do cool I mean yeah. I'm not, not going to be like looking to I was never looking for anything out of him but yeah. I mean I'm, but and then one day I was we, were just, we got just got chatting and I was like playing him some of the, I started making music and I was playing some stuff and he was like this is great man you know and I, you know and um, I sent him a mix I did with one of his tracks a remix he did for um, Method Man oh uh, uh, check your bring, sing- the pain. Uh, no, bring did they not release your Delph? Release your Delph. Release your Delph. Yeah. yeah, sorry, you released Delph. It was it was a Bring the Pain was the Chemical Brothers at the yes. box. Bring the Pain, but um, and I had a, had the track in the mix sent to him, and I was like, "Yo, check it out." And he was like, "Yeah, man, this is really good." Like, um, if you, if you wanted to come DJ with us sometime, let me know. And I was like, "Yeah, let I mean, me I mean, know. I mean, whatever." <laughs> like, you know, you know, he's like, "You know, we're gonna do gigs in Ireland." You know, I, you know, we're looking for some, we're always looking for someone to, to do a warm up and stuff. Like, yeah, cool. So then, um, I love how casual that is. Oh, just let me know, and yeah, you're like, oh, you know, like now, <laughs> now? Out, like yesterday. Let me check my diary. Let me see what I've got scheduled. No, sorry, lame. Right. Not happening, bro. So he, so I mean, he, he, we, we just became friends, really, and he, um, he basically opened the door there, and and I went and did a few shows, and then he just kept asking for me every time they'd come, and he was like, no, we need to get you in. One time, they, he, he'd asked for me. His agent had asked for me, and they'd spoken to this promoter in Ireland who was doing the show and the girl who worked in the office forgot to call me Ooh. and then on the day of the show they didn't know that this had happened and they, they thought I was playing and then I get a phone call the night before the show I'm in London okay. doing a gig and, I, and, and they're like oh here they were like right we'll see you tomorrow I got a f- message from Solomon Parker I think at the time going over oh, we'll see you tomorrow in, at this, double, this show in Ireland and I'm like what are you talking about and then I was like, uh, he was like, we booked you to play tomorrow. And I was like, no, no, no one ever told, told me. Then I got a phone call from the girl, and she's like, panic stations. Yeah, where are you? You're in Ireland. And I was like, no, I'm in England. I can't make it. I have a show tonight. I'm not going to be. I have something to do tomorrow. I can't make it. You should tell me. Like, like I can't. I can't make it. And I was like, I don't. I don't know. They got someone else to do it, but um, you know, that was always like. You know, it was. It was weird because I was always like fairly respectful of that relationship. I never really asked for anything mm. you know and um, we just kind of ended up getting doing a remix for them as well myself and Phil that went really well for us um, we got really a lot of radio play from it in Germany and we ended up doing tours of Germany off the back of that remix alone and we got we got offered a Ramstein remix at one point wow. and we didn't do it in the end it just, I don't know why we didn't do it in the end but it didn't <laughs> happen in the end for some reason but uh, like they were like talk Ramstein's people were on to us about doing a remix and we were like I was a bit weird about it but obviously Ramstein are the prodigy of Germany essentially mm-hmm. kind of thing but they're yeah. a huge act but uh, um, so yeah it was mad we did all we had, it was just it was a radio track in Germany <laughs> our remix because the prodigy are massive in Germany mm-hmm. you know, apparently so prodigy are massive everywhere it's massive like, everywhere. for an electronic act like so many iconic tracks particularly in the the 90s you know like obviously I can say this as a fan maybe you're a little bit too close I always kind of feel like I liked some of the bits of the last album but I feel to me The Fat of the Land was the last great Prodigy album and the reason I feel like that is um, it's almost like Liam stopped sampling old hip hop breaks I love that grimy dirt chamber sound that, that they had and I think for a while there I remember reading an interview with them when they came back with was it always outnumbered never outgunned that came after The Fat of the Land like 2004 I remember reading an interview with him where he talked about how like he had discovered Reason Mm. And like, you know, he could do everything in the box now. And I kind of felt that maybe a little bit of the magic was lost there. But what was that? What was that last uh, track that they had? The one with the video with the guys running around crazy and it's a real return to that. No one or something mm. like that. It's called. I thought that was a real return to form kind of, you know, and like, it is, uh, like it's kind of, which is kind of sad. It's quite sad because exactly like, given recent events, recent events. And it, like cause the thing for me this year was like we went to see them in Ali Pali 
doing the, the London shows and uh, and it was like the buzz was was back to they when they played all the old stuff and the show and we were just losing our mind. Mel C was there from the Spice Girls wow. and we were like I was like looking at her going, She's having it here and then she was and all of a sudden she's like, I'm going up to the front she ran up to the front into the mosh pit and she was up there for the whole gig and I wasn't even able for that but we were like we were probably like raving like mm. at this gig because they were just going through the classics mm. and and but their new stuff was still resonating and uh, it was and it had that element in it yeah you know of the early rave stuff and you felt like it was like they were just back on top again yeah they'd, they'd gone on this journey and it was like they're back to where where it was at the height and everything that was coming was going to be like the top of the game you know so it was it was kind of it was just so it was weird man for the whole thing to go down the way it did and really sad it was obviously no one expects that sort of thing no one knew and you know it was just really it's still quite numbing to think about it and not, and I don't know the lads are still trying to get over that I don't know how it's going to it's going to take them a long time to get mm. through that man it's just you know your it's your whole life you know completely yeah. particularly Shut when down. you've been as friendly yeah. you know with each other for as they're long as family. they have exactly their family, family. And, and they've built a life together and a career and they've toured the world and made music and you know, it's kind of like, where do you go from here? Do, do you do you do a Led Zeppelin and call it a day, like when John Bonham passed away, or do you continue and you know try and regrow something? You know, it's. Right. I mean, it's, it's I, time, I, man. It's time. I mean, I, I was thinking about it, and I haven't, I haven't said, I haven't asked Liam about it or anything, but I was like, do you think you'll be able to make music again? That's just what you think, you know. We yeah. have mm. you, like because because you know, music's such a personal thing, and memory linked to trauma, it's a sometimes when you go through trauma you need to move away from the things that link like whether yeah. you live in a house and somebody dies yeah. in the house or you know you have a f- something that happens to you and you're wearing a particular shirt or you know there's something it's only time it's man. Time, time is the you know, only so thing for you that you need to get away from it and you get away from those things that re- resonate and remind you about yeah. what the trauma is and then but when you know when you make music again I think you know to be honest with you I think Liam Hallett will always make music mm-hmm. I think um Maxime will always make music. Whether we'll see the prodigy again, I really don't know. You know, it's, I really, I really don't know. But I'd like to think maybe one day they might be able to get back on there and do it. But I wouldn't, you know, I'm not expecting it. You know, and they just mm-hmm. need to just make sure that they're able to live. You know, and mm-hmm. go on and, and 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 find try and find peace with it all. Yeah. And you know, I've never seen Maxime so shook as I did at, at Keith's funeral. I was like, Maxime is a rock. You know, mm-hmm. Maxime is a wall. He's he's ten foot tall. You know, and he's just huge energy and I was like seeing him there was heartbreaking and we were just looking at him going and he was just like it was sad man it was really sad I'm getting emotional even talking about it now but like you know I just it's just mad you know but it's like it's life and sadly we're we're in a we're in a time where this is like it's not just you know these things aren't just the the freak occurrences they're maybe they weren't just freak occurrences and they're always going on a lot along a lot of the time but we're Starting to highlight it more now. We were, we just played at um, um, Declan Pierce's. Mark Cavanaugh ran a the cause event in a, in out of Pieta House, and you know, and I've, there's been some ma- major losses for me in this kind of ending, you know. And um, you know, it's just it's just it's it's just it seems unprecedented, 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 you know. But I don't know if that's just the you know the, the age I'm at or the generation or whatever it is. But it's just it's just I can't, I don't know, I can't even say anymore, man. Sorry, I don't really know what to say. I'm like God. It's just mm-hmm. mad. It's mind blowing and it's sad. But I really hope like Liam and and Maxim and the entire Prodigy team, um, 
you know, I know they'll survive and I just hope that they can, you know, grow and move on and, and eventually find some peace, you know, and, you know, we'll never, none of us will ever forget that, you know, and we'll always, we'll always remember it and we'll always, we just have to live with it, you know, you know, mm. and grow. But um, there's no time limit. In terms of influential music acts, kind of have to touch on this scene as you are like related to the man. How's Andy's uh, resurgence of Ride going? You know what? It's amazing. Like it's just been beautiful to watch him go back into this. And like no disrespect to Oasis and no disrespect to the BDI stuff. And but the thing about Ride was always that um, it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenon. And when he went into Oasis, he was he wasn't you know doing the sort of guitar playing he's doing in Ride mm. like the, the way he plays guitar in Ride is just like is f- phenomenal you know like it's like he's a, like there's a reason he gets the Pink Floyd asked him to be in Pink Floyd at a, for a period <laughs> there's a reason you know that all these people are like mad about him and I didn't experience it so I saw Ride the yeah. way he played I, I was like you, you're an animal man how many times a day does he get asked about an Oasis reunion? I mean, I mean, every time he looks at his Twitter or Instagram, <laughs> you know, like every second, there's all, every post he puts up, there's always a retort, you know, but that's never going to happen, man, is it? No. Like, I, I, I hope it doesn't. Like, I'm, an, I'm a long-term Oasis fan since I was 13 years old, and I hope it never happens, because I feel it wouldn't be for the right reasons. I mean, I just can't, it's just weird. I just think the, the, the divide between, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah there is just yeah. too deep I don't know I can't see anyone who's going to be able to build that bridge but maybe they can if they're out there great but if they're not it just doesn't you know I'm delighted for Andy that he's doing this now and like the ride thing is just the new album that they've done is, with Errol is phenomenal mm-hmm. like it's the last album I was thought was amazing but this I, I had a listen to it about a month ago we went over to Errol's house I was helping Andy Andy was giving Errol a, like a an org, like a piano organ thing mm-hmm. huge one that he had in the gaff so me Andy and Errol and one of Errol's office guys got a zip van and loaded it in and brought it over and Errol invited us in he was like I want to play the album so we sat down and he just ran through the, the new album and it was mind blowing awesome it was like next level you know Errol is one of my biggest inspirations you mm-hmm. know and uh, it was just like you've absolutely smashed it here lads so, well I mean, I mean I'm going to be biased anyway but I was honest with them I was like lads this is actually really good you're my mates but like this is fucking good yeah. I really hope this is takes this thing up the notch because you deserve it, you know. Yeah, particularly after coming back after all those years as well. Yeah. I thought I was really kind of happy. I don't know if happy is the word, but to see I saw a picture of Andy and Noel, Noel G together yeah. recently, and I remember like when that Oasis breakup, there was kind of a, an acrimonious kind of you know there was barbs fired in interviews back and forth as well. But I think it's it's great to see that they're cool now and that everything's kind of you know on a plateau and whatever yeah, else and whatever happens happens between the two brothers. I don't know, but um, no one will know but them, you know, and that's the thing, you know. Like speaking of hassles, I see some alarming news in uh, the media this week about the Bernard Shaw and the noise complaints and stuff. This whole culture of new apartments and hotels in Dublin. I know there's an accommodation crisis, but we're losing too many venues. This is crazy, you know. I mean, I'm I'm heartbroken about District Eight, really, you know. But mm. um, that's that's a loss um, for me, you know. And uh, I think things have to change. But I don't know. It's we're we're, in, we're such a nanny state, really, in in terms of. Um, what we're are and aren't allowed to do, you know. Being in, in London, I'm like having meetings with people who have restaurants and they have a bar, and they're talking to me about they want to do a block party outside the bar, take over the area, put in the big census, and have a street party. And I'm like, "What? Well, you can you can do this?" And I'm like, and "They're like, yeah, you can. They want us to do it. We just need to we just need to, uh, just ring the council and tell them we're doing it, and just fill out a form and pay a little fee, and then we can run a party." 
for all the people in the local neighborhood and all the people who come to our restaurant and outdoors and have you know you can't do that in Ireland. Mm. You know, so Ireland's in that is we're in a nanny state. We can't do this. We can't do that. There's a lot of you know we don't have Notting Hill Carnival. I've always, I was always I remember meeting a guy who was like the head of a chair of some like Temple Bar Association years ago, and I remember going thinking to him like, man, imagine we could take over Temple Bar and just turn it into Dublin's Notting Hill Carnival or, or mm. any town in Ireland, Galway. Imagine taking over the centre of Galway and turning it into Notting Hill Carnival. It just they just don't let you. There's too much red tape. You can't do this. You can't do that. We're not allowed. We're not allowed to do this. And then. You know, they're closing down our clubs and our venues. And, you know, the thing is, I always find is that eventually there'll be another venue. You know, you have like Lost Lane and stuff opening up. And I know District 8 have got a new venue and it's coming. So, um, you know, it always comes around. So I don't, you know, as much as stuff goes and it's sad, you know, you always kind of have to believe that it'll come around again. Someone's going to open a venue because there's money to be made there. Mm -hmm. And as long as as there's money to be made, someone's going to want to make that money. And the thing is, if capitalism takes over, it'll just drive it back underground. Exactly. And that will probably happen. You see that a lot in London. There's loads of underground stuff you don't even know about in London. happens in like weird warehouse parties and people running their own events and taking over warehouses. And you just, that doesn't even hit the surface, you know, and it's been going on for years still. And that's a whole subculture that no one even knows about unless you're there and you're involved in it. And, you know, I think there's a bit of that in Ireland. You know, we're doing, I think, called Way of the West Festival on the 2nd of June. And that's kind of based around the fact that these people from West Cork, you know, Sam from Connolly's, Peter, Samson Brothers, and a whole host of them, Julie and all that, and they're just putting on their own festival with their own sound system, Toby Hatchet sound systems, all their own acts. It's a non-for-profit event, but they have to run their own thing. Mm. You know what I mean, and that's you know I think, I and mean, you've you've noticed a lot of the, like, like uh, little promoters and little you know club runners who are running their own small festivals now because they can, and you know another love stories. There are all these amazing things are happening, and Shirkin Island. There's this electronic festival on it, and you know there's a lot of small little subcultures starting to do their own thing. And respect for all of that, and even like the, the there's like a lot of techno and house promoters from Dublin doing smaller festivals. I don't know, man. Closing venues down, it's just not good. It's a very different landscape to kind of when we would have come through. If you could bring back like a club that influenced you or even just tell me what clubs influenced you when you were coming up in Dublin, I'm assuming like Temple of Sound and things like that. What about you, Shimon? No, I didn't ha- I didn't really hit any like actual institutions. Like all the shit that I was hitting in New York was pretty much underground, super underground shit, warehouse shit. But um, I do have a big liking. LeBain's still there. I'm just like kind of obsessed and blown away just by the fact that there's a swimming pool underneath the disco ball, so at any given time of the night, whoever's feeling good just takes off, gets in the pool next to the dance floor under the disco ball, on the on the roof overlooking the city. It's just like, I don't know, man. It's nothing like it, really. How much planning permission would you need for that in Dub, do you think, Eric? <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, the whole country would probably come to a like a, like a standstill yeah, and yeah. have to like shoot everybody <laughs> you right, know? So, I mean. but it's just kind of sad you know like I mean that's the thing like I don't know why we're so nannied I don't know why we're, why it's such a big deal for them not to let the kids go out and dance and party and let off steam and exercise their rights to have a good time but it just seems to be where it is you know and people like give us the night and Sunil and all the boys who are pushing the thing I mean, we've been behind that movement. I know you have as well. We've all been behind that movement from like year, back in the day when it started. And it, we're still not there, but it feels like now the politicians are understanding that we've come to fruition and, and the youth are going to have the vote in the future and they need to take it seriously. Yeah. And uh, let's, go, let's be honest with it. None of this is about 
things only get done in this country when the politi- by the politicians when they know they need the votes. Mm-hmm. So that's the way to harness this whole thing is to kind of you know use your voting power. You need to get out there and vote and vote for people that you know who are going to get behind it. And that's it. That's what it comes down to. Nothing else is going to change that. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it feels like Give Us the Night has been plugging away for so long. I remember doing one of the kind of awareness type gigs back in the day, and it feels like forever ago. And you're kind of questioning whether or not it's actually going to ever happen, you know? It's just that kind of vibe for me. But um, just back on your career for a second, it could all have been very different. Because I remember you telling me before, both of us did that same TV course in Ranala. And you got offered the den. <laughs> Zig and zag thing, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was weird. It was like, I did this TV course. And, you know, I just thought, like, TV was a cool thing to do. And I, I just was like, oh, it's a, there's a presenter's course. Mm-hmm. I might as well do it, you know. And then um, went and did it. And then started doing bits and bobs. Did, like, the Festival World Cultures for two years as a presenter. There was a few different presenters on that as well. Like, um, and that was really interesting. And then started doing some bits. I don't know, just different bits and bobs. Did some stuff at Oxygen for, you know, interviews. It was for acts. Heineken, was Heineken it? Heineken TV. Yeah. It was like years ago. And then it did a documentary. Wearing your fucking poncho. Wearing my poncho, <laughs> pon- poncing around in my poncho. <laughs> that you got from Adidas. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> it. was Adi Dazzling the world. And uh, and I think, what else? I did, I did a documentary for Red Bull that never got released, you oh, know, wow. um, for Red Bull UK. Anyway, I started doing all this TV stuff and did the course. And then, um, I somehow RTE got in touch with me and they were like we want, you know we're really interested in, in your stuff come in and screen test for some stuff went in it's going really well we have this opportunity in the den we want you to be the music anchor and you know we'd love you to be involved and I don't I mean I don't know whether it was a certain amount of box ticking because mm. it didn't have any any you know non-white people on the telly or not very many and but not, you know, but I was like, I'll do it. But you need to let me take t- take the piss out of it because I can't sit up there talking about Britney Spears with a st- with a straight face, and it's probably going to be the end of my music career to do yeah. that. You know, because I've seen other people go on those things from a music background and it not going too well. Mm-hmm. And um, it came like really close to when it was. It was like two weeks before I was meant to go on air, and I just was like, I couldn't do it. I was like, nah. And did they put anybody else in in your place, or did they just? Scrap I think it? they did. They put someone else in. I can't remember who it was. It might have been a girl or another guy, but it was just like. I think things could have been very different. Maybe I would have been like an X Factor presenter there or something like that. But <laughs> you could have been Dermot O'Leary. You know, it could have been, you know, like what I mean. It wasn't meant to be. I didn't want it. You know, yeah. I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I was too, I was, you know, I was meeting people and like the, my, my mate Scott from Mainline, he was in this band called Mainline. Um, and I remember him just going, what story you are of like, you're doing this TV stuff. Like, what's that all about? Like, it's, I mean, it's a bit weird. Isn't it? You're into this underground house and shit and breaks and all. And I was like, yeah, you're right, man. I remember just thinking, he's fucking right, man. Like, this is, like, not me. Why, why am I going to be up there talking about something that I'm not about? So then I made a conscious decision only to do stuff, and I didn't stop doing TV stuff because I was like, well, you know, unless I'm talking about something that I actually care about or feel a connection with, then it's fake, you know? Mm. I did. I got a few offers for things, and I just... I remember once I got put into this into the mix on a, a pitch for live a new Live at 3-type program. Wow. It was, like, me, Ian Dempsey, and that... Irish lady called Blonded who was like I remember that yeah she was younger than me at the time and she th- she seemed to think that I was a kid and was talking to me like I was a child it was quite funny and kind of charming but it was hilarious but um and I was like and there was like four other presenters and it was like they had it set up with all the presenters in a circle and they were like filming it going around to each one doing their pit and it kept coming to me and I kept fucking it up oh. 
And we got to like the 15th time and I just went, actually, you know, we'll just let you record your own and we'll edit it in. <laughs> but it was like Ian Dempsey having to do this piece, like, it was like a famous Irish presenter, radio presenter, doing this piece like 15 times and all them all, everyone getting it right except for me. Jesus. And I was, they were like making me a fashion correspondent and that's why I kept looking me, my head up because I was yeah. like, I, you know, I'm not a fashion correspondent. This is it's a pity weird. you didn't know each other at that I time. I mean, you know, okay. I was like, <laughs> my man here forward. Yeah. That put a nail in the coffin for me. I was like, I don't want to do this ever again. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> So beyond the festival dates this summer, what's in the future, both for you musically and fashion-wise, sir? Actually, um, projecting in the, the bigger scheme of things to uh, do a all-out fashion show, runway catwalk thing with Bon Voyage doing the, the sound. So that's the calculated steps for that. And then that's pretty much the main objective, that and pushing forward with the the big summer drop where I have a nice trip thing because there's going to be a lot of like specially specific detail pieces for that so curating that whole thing is kind of at the forefront of the attention for our whole next wave with the fashion stuff and just doing a bunch more uh, trainers hopefully going to be doing a creeper collaboration with a Japanese company for a creeper pretty soon hopefully sometime before the end of the year that will kick off and um, yeah, I'll let him tell the future for the music side. Yeah, we've got so much plan. I mean, we're basically we've done so many gigs in the last year and a half that we're like, we need to just take a break and start working on the music side and getting it out because we've been recording music all along, so mm-hmm. we have a lot of demos and stuff. So we've done some great stuff. So we're like, yeah. we, we don't need to be out there flogging this, you know. We need mm-hmm. to just get our music out now. So we're kind of focusing in on that, and then we're going to possibly do some more shows at the end of the summer. We're not planning on on doing any festival stuff. There might be one or two that happens, but we're not planning on it. But mm-hmm. um, and we're going to do a couple more shows around Europe at the end of August, September time, and then try and break over to America. And that's our ne- our focus. Next focus really is America. Yeah, the next wave. That's the next wave. America and Japan. It seems to be some interest going yeah. on there. So we're going to start focusing on that. And you know, Ireland has been phenomenal. We've actually done most of our work here. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's partially because I'm from here, but it's also because it's worked. You know, so yeah. we've had this connection, and we've done, we start we've started getting some offers for stuff in the UK as well and around Europe. And so, but America is really where we want to focus on. So we're going to be on that for this whole summer. Is basically getting more music out, working on this eight by eight project with the Have a Nice Trip EPs Part One and Two, and all those kind of um, bells and whistles that are going to come with that. So that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, Let's put yeah, it that yeah. way. There's a lot we'll of work for us to do. That, yeah. We could be busy with that for the next five months. Yeah. You know? You're talking about the Irish connection. I love that picture of you and the old lady. Is it in a pub somewhere? Oh, where was that at? It was in Wexford, and that's with the phenomenal uh, uh, Dorian Kilfeather. She's a photographer. Yeah. She's an absolute genius. It was great. That lady told a sex joke. That's what like was funny. That's why I was laughing like that. And do you do you find kind of like Irish people when they see your look and they're kind of drawn to us kind of oh, in a yeah. curious manner? I love it because it's unlike any other place. It's just like really uh, warming because you know it's just genuine mm. curiosity. Whereas a lot of places you can be, it's just really uncomfortable the way people try to like understand what's going on with you. Like they don't really make you feel comfortable in the process of trying to understand what you're about, but Irish people, like, you're already crying while they're in the process of, like, trying to figure out what the story is. Like, I love it. 
Are you DJing full-time? That's your full-time thing? Or have you got a day job? What I are you mean, yeah, D- D- I mean, I've just got involved in kind of slightly festival booking stuff at Body and Soul, work with them for like five or six years. Um, How are you finding the whole curating game? Is it hard to move around the pieces and make sure everyone's happy? It's never easy, man. It's never easy to do anything like that because, you know, there's, there's like five sides to every argument, so, and you need to kind of keep everyone happy, you know, so, you know, I, you know, I'm, I've had a really good relationship with, with uh, Absolute Vodka. We're not doing Body and Soul this year. I'm kind of, you know, as much as I'd love to do it, it's actually quite a nice to get a break, you know, mm-hmm. from, from doing it. I've done like six or seven years working with Body and Soul. So that's quite intense, you know. It takes up half a year doing that, you know, and it's not something, it's not necessarily about making money because you could do, you could make money doing other stuff, but it was just a passion for being able to showcase music and, and give people a chance and break people like Mix and Fairbanks and the Kira Brady's and the Aoife O'Neill's and, you know, who are like rising DJs now and, you know, also showing a, a nod to the, the originators like Fish Go Deep and Johnny Moyes and Billy Scurries who are the, you know, people who started a lot of it, you know, especially people like Fish Go Deep, man. You know, they're like the originators of oh, yeah. of Irish house music. You know, there's no, they were doing it back in the day in the, in the 80s, you know. And they're still doing else. it. <laughs> and they're still sick, you know. We, we, we actually Sharp. collaborated on a track with them. We did two tracks with Fish Go Deep, which hopefully will be coming to light in the next year or so and they're just like I mean you know Greg and Shane have been like my inspirations you know from the minute I heard who they were and I went to I got to go to Sir Henry's before it closed and it was just a, an experience that's never like if I could bring back a club like you were saying earlier mm. it would be it would be uh, sweat Sir Henry's you know <laughs> like in that format that it was when it was when it was DVG in the dungeon and Greg and Shane and Starship Enterprise like smashing you know like classic house records you know deep house records that with singing you know 2,000 people singing along to like a soul track essentially yeah. you know like a house soul track in a Temple of Sound you know I mean I miss those clubs we need we need more of that stuff 